Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Rodina Asban, here with my friend, Chavruta and Gordon. Page 25. So we really, I would call this one of the like famous Gemara uh, dapin. There's a really famous Mishnah and passage of the Gemara afterwards, which gets cited very often. So we're not going to read the whole page, but I think we're going to pick out uh, some of the better uh, or more famous parts of it. And the Mishnah begins with the following scenario. We spent a lot of time talking about the construction of the sukkah itself. And now we're finally getting to who needs to sit to the, in the sukkah. And so, of course, the Mishnah doesn't start with who's obligated. It's telling us with who's exempt from sitting in the sukkah, which I always love about Mishnah. Shluchay mitzvah, pitzurin min sukkah. So somebody who's going to perform a mitzvah is exempt from the mitzvah of sukkah, right? So presumably that is you're busy needing to do another mitzvah. It's time for you to eat. You would not be obligated to eat in a sukkah because you're busy with this other mitzvah. Uh, somebody who's ill and their caretaker, caretakers, they're also putzer from sukkah, right? And presumably that an ill person will be able to make it into the sukkah. And someone who's taking care of them also, it, it's going to be hard for them to get into the sukkah in order to eat. And finally, the last category, which is anybody who's sort of eating or drinking, Arai, um, you know, some, I have one English translation here in front of me of casual. I don't know if it's there for that one. Um, I think I also saw casual. I don't have the English in front of me the second, but I, I did see casual. I think of it as snacks. Yeah, like snacking, right? Outside of the sukkah, that's considered to be okay. In other words, it's you're not sitting down for lunch. It's like, oh, I need to just eat a quick apple. You can do that. So here we have a mission that sort of cites particular types of people who are involved with particular types of activity, right? The shluchay mitzvah or the second category of, chul, of cholin and misham shehen. And then, and then the second half of the Mishnah is talking about types of meals that makes one uh, exempt or types of food eating activity that makes one exempt. And so the Gemara here basically proceeds to get into a discussion based on this mitzvah about what exactly is this shulche uh, ha-mitzvah. And this basically gets into the very famous Gemara or this concept of osek b'mitzvah patr min ha-mitzvah. The idea that if you are busy uh, with one type of mitzvah, right, you are basically, uh, you're, you're patr from doing other types of mitzvah, right? So first the Gemara starts by saying, right, where do we know this from? Right, and so we learn this from Shema, right, from Devarim uh, chapter six, verse seven, right? When you sit, in, you know, when you're sitting or when you're when you're sitting in your house, so this would exempt somebody who's engaged in a mitzvah. In other words, if you're sitting at home, presumably you're not doing anything else, but if you're outside of your home and you're busy doing a mitzvah, you would be exempt from having to say Shema. And when you walk, by the way, this excludes the groom, right? Because the groom is preoccupied with the mitzvah of consummating the marriage um, and, uh, and and they're exempt. Right? And so here the Brisa adds that if somebody marries a virgin, they're exempt from saying Shema on their wedding night. He would be, the, the, the husband would be exempt, but a widow, they would still be um, obligated. 
Um, and so then the Gemara goes on to say, my mashma, right? Where do we actually uh, get this about the Chatan? And, you know, so the Gemara is going to go into a little bit uh, more uh, more discussion about this. Um, but I want to skip down to a piece and, and a little bit more about the widow and the Chatan um, and things like that. Um, but um, I want to skip down to another part here. So the Gemara goes back and for the first time uses the actual term of and basically asks the question, like, where is this really derived from? Right. They start with Shema, but now they're going to come back to other sources. Right. We get it derived from here. And here's a Tanya and they quote a Brisa here. And so they say there were certain men who became tame by the corpse of a person. And basically they're talking here about people who could not observe Pesach in its right time, right? Remember, we learned this in Masach Pesachim, that one of the few exceptions to why you could not bring a korban Pesach is because if you were tame meat, right? Because you were busy with that chesed shel emes and you couldn't bring it on time. So this is from Bamidbar chapter nine, verse six. Um, but then the Gemara sort of sidetracks here and says, Otam nash anashim mihayu. Who were these people in the Midbar who weren't able to bring the Korban Pesach? No se no shel Yosef hayu. Dibre Rabbi Yosi Haglili. And so Rabbi Yosi Haglili says the people there in the desert were the people who, remember Yosef uh, on his deathbed uh, made, his, made, a, made his children promise him that his bones would not stay in Mitzrayim and that eventually they would be brought out and so during Yitzhak Mitzrayim, those bones were brought out and were carried throughout the Midbar. So those people who carried that coffin with the bones, they were Tame. And th- that's who the Vayihi Anashima Yutmeim, that's who it is referring to. Rabbi Akiva Omer, Rabbi Akiva says, no, it's somebody else. Misael El Tzafan. It's, uh, it's, it's Misael and El Tzafan, right? Who were they? Shayu Oskim Benadav and Avihu. They were busy with the bodies of the two sons of Aaron who were killed at the day of the dedication of the Beitamik, of the Mishkan, right? Where they brought that H Zar, that foreign fire, and they were killed. Rabbi Yitzchak Omer, im no se Aronosho Yosef Hayu. So Rabbi Yitzchak says, if they were the carriers of Aaron's, uh, of Yosef's, excuse me, Aaron, kavar yuolchin letaher, right? They could have already been purified because the idea is they were basically at the camp at Harsinai for enough time that they would have had enough time uh, to actually become pure. And then they could have brought the um, the Korban Pesach in its right time. And also, Mishael and El Tzafan, they also would have had enough time because the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was dedicated on the first day of Nisan, right? The eighth day, sorry, was put up the first day of, of Nisan. The inauguration was on the eighth day, right? And that's when they were killed. And so there were seven more days, which turns out to be Erev Pesach, which is on the 14th. And so they actually could have been pure in time. Ella So rather, they say these were unnamed people. It's not the people that they actually named here who were engaged in attending to a corpse on Erev Shabbat. Because we get a hint from that in the Pasuk itself, because that Pasuk in Bamidbar says they could not do the Pesach on that particular day. 
on that day they couldn't do it. They couldn't but do on it. The but next on day, the next day they could they have could done. Have and done. so what they mean here is, is that they could have been purified by nightfall, right? Then they would have been eligible to actually eat it. And remember, we learned this in Masach Sachim. When you have that person, right, who basically is going to complete the purification process, right? They need to wait till sundown of that seventh day. And then by evening of day eight, right, the start of day eight, they are totally tahor. So they can basically eat the Korban Pesach, right? Um, and so they would have been able to, you know, they would have been eligible to do it. But by the, but at the time of shechting it, of the slaughter and the sprinkling the blood, they were not uh, fully, uh, they weren't. And so they basically, these people asked, could somebody basically shech the Korban Pesach um, on our behalf? And so this is the idea where we get that this is a sort of osik b'mitzvah, um, pater min ha-mitzvah, right? That these people were obligated to um, perform the mitzvah of burial, a kfur of a corpse, even though it prevented them from fulfilling the mitzvah of actually uh, bringing the korban Pesach, which we know that not bringing the korban Pesach, you're high of kares for, right? But they were allowed to perform that other mitzvah in order to do this. And then the Gemara goes on to say tzricha, right? What this is, both sources are necessary here. Ti'i ashma'inan hatam, right? Because if it was taught us there, right, the case about the about being tame, mishum delok, right, tame, um, at uh, you know, with the korban pesach, mishum delok mitaz man chiyuvat pesach, right? We would have thought that this was due to the fact that the obligation of pesach had not yet come, right? And so therefore they were obligated to bury the corpse, because they would have had time to actually, because uh, they basically just did the first mitzvah that they that they got to first. In other words, the first mitzvah they got to was burying the, the um, uh, uh, you know, was to bury the corpse, and so that they, they had to do that first. But here, where we talk about the Shema, which was the first source that we brought right at the beginning of the Gemara here, mitazman kriyat Shema, amai lo Right, but when it's the time to recite Shema, when this time of Shema comes, like let's say during a wedding or something like that, right? We could say no, right? That maybe the groom is not accept, right? And Sricha, so it was necessary. We needed that one also to teach us about the groom. Be and if it was taught us only the case in Shema, Mishum Deleka Karet, where there isn't Karet, right? So then we would have thought, okay, this only applies when we're talking about cases that do not involve karate. But here with the case of Pesach, right? It's a karate, and, and that's why we needed it to show that even with the most stringent of mitzvot, we're still going to uh, require, we're still going to allow Usik mitzvah. So I think this Gemara shows us two very interesting short sources for Usik mitzvah. One from Shema, one from uh uh, and and the second one here, uh, you know, from Bamidbar for people who are busy with a corpse, they justify why you need both of them, why they're both unique cases. And I think this is just a, it's a very, very famous piece of Gemara and really just a lovely attempt at some good Midrash Halakha, but also tries to tell us why you needed both, why one wasn't good enough and that you needed to cover multiple cases there. Okay. Um I'm going to take this same question, right? What happens when you're busy with one mitzvah and you have another mitzvah into 
onto the rest of the daf, which brings us to different mitzvot, right? If we've got, um, you know, if Shema is, the, is, I don't know what, the the main basis for the discussion. So we're going to talk what happens for a mourner, and we're going to talk about what happens for a wedding, as you mentioned, your dinner. Okay. Um, if you have somebody who's mourning, a mourning is obligated in the midst of sukkah. The Gemara says, well, pshita, right? That was, of course he's obligated in sukkah. Why wouldn't he be? Maybe the thought is that when you say that somebody who is suffering, somebody who is mitz air, somebody who is suffering is exempt from the sukkah, so then you would think that this person who's in Avel, someone who's mourning, is also suffering, perhaps that person would be exempt from the sukkah as well. Therefore we learn no, even the, the suffering is not enough, I guess, to exempt him from the sukkah. We should be clear. We're talking here about you, the usual case of mitzta'er is somebody who is mitzta'er from the circumstances of being in the sukkah. It's too hot, it's too cold, it's raining, that kind of thing. Um, as a, I don't know, maybe mosquitoes, right? It's a different setting than somebody who is suffering from something external to the experience of sukkah. And, and therefore, you know, the, the idea that he would be exempt is a little bit further afield. Hani milate sarad mamela, right? This is exactly what it says. Um, that this is these words. This thing is talking about sarad um, mamela. It's suffering that is of itself. I guess it's from from itself. It's not. It's hard to translate mamela. Avahacha, but in this case, ihu hu date. So in this case, right. He's causing himself to suffer, right? Which has nothing to do with the sukkah. So then he still have to, the atvedate, he needs to kind of settle himself down. Well, it says to settle himself. To bring himself to a place of calm. The idea being that then he'll be able to go fulfill this mitzvah. So that's the avhel. That's somebody who is in mourning, or you might have thought that being you know, involved in the process and the emotions of mourning would exempt you from the sukkah. And in this case, the answer is no, sorry, it does not. You still have a mitzvah of sukkah. Um, I should be clear, when we talk about an avel, we're not talking about somebody who is in the period of aninut, the period from when somebody first hears about the the, the happening of somebody's pa- passing, somebody that somebody has died, um, until burial, right? We're talking about after burial where somebody goes into the process of mourning. First we have Shiva and Shloshim and for for those who are mourning a parent, uh, God forbid, uh, a year-long process of mourning. Okay, um, we'll talk about mourning also and some other point in the whole Shas enterprise. Now let's talk about a wedding. It's kind of nice to move on to that. Um and I just want to mention here, we have, I have the privilege of being at a wedding. I have at a wedding a couple of days ago and a wedding in a couple of days. The wedding from a couple of days ago was, um, you all, some of you will know, Sherry Saberstein, who spoke at our last, at our last seum. Her son, her second son got married. Sherry is my first cousin. So I had the privilege of being there despite Corona and all of that. And it was wonderful to be there and represent our family and to see these you know, young people getting married. So, <coughs> we have here, Chatan, Shoshvinan, Kol Shiva. 
So this is the week of the wedding that the wedding party has Shava Brachot, right? The groom, Chatan, and the the wedding party, right? The Shoshvinan are the perhaps the groomsmen, right? All the people who are part of the Chupa. They are all exempt from dwelling in the sukkah, from going to have the mitzvah of sukkah all of the whole week. Meaning the week here is the week of the wedding celebration, not the week of sukkahs, right? If they happen to overlap, it'll still not be exact. I don't know. They're not getting married on the first day of sukkah, of Sukkot, right? It'll be beforehand. So anyway, that's the point that they're exempt for the whole of the time of the Sheva Brachot. My Tama, why? What's the rationale? Mishum debal lemechede so what happens? They want to rejoice. They want to rejoice. So the, the Gemara says, also oh, let them rejoice in the sukkah. Like why? Why should this be a problem? Sukkot is man simchatenu, right? It should be a joyous time, and let this be a joyous time. Ein simcha ela It says so the Gemara says there's no. Rejoicing, like the rejoicing of a chupa, right? <clears throat> the rejoicing is only that of the marriage canopy, I guess. Um, so then the Gemara says, so let them treat the sukkah like everybody else treats the sukkah, right? Eating the sukkah, whatever. And then they can go to the chupa. So let's be careful. Chupa here does not mean the wedding canopy. I've mistranslated this. I apologize. It means the the first home, right? That this young couple is going, not necessarily young, that the couple is going to, right? This is going to be the wedding home. It's a different, it's a it's its own kind of simcha and it isn't the Sukkot simcha, right? So we want to say, well, so, so that's fine. Celebrate in the sukkah as well and celebrate also in the wedding home. So then the Gemara says, there's only, there's no joy, there's no rejoicing in a place, except for, well, except for in a place where you have a meal, right? This is a, a phrasing that is used also, I suppose, in the context of any suda mitzvah, right? That the idea is that you need to have this meal for the rejoicing of it, which means that the meal should be with the rejoicing of the chuppah in the home of the newlyweds and not in the sukkah. It should be in the home because that's the new thing. That's the, that's the rejoicing thing. I find this to be almost odd because I would, I would say, well, so rejoice in the sukkah. Like, so everybody should, you know, celebrate the newlyweds in the sukkah. And I do think that people nowadays sometimes do have Shevbrachot in the sukkah. But this Gemara makes it clear, at least from a Gemara perspective, we're not poskating from the Gemara, that you could go to your house and eat the food, but that you that recommend it here, right? To have the rejoicing take place in the home where the newlyweds will be. So then the Gemara asks, and I love this, So then let them sell it, let them set up their chuppah, their wedding home, Basuka in the sukkah, right? Make sure that that's that's where they're going to be. Let them have a sukkah. That will be their wedding home. Abai says that's not appropriate. But he says he says mishum yichud yichud means seclusion, right? That the husband and wife are going to be alone together, and the concern is that there would be an issue of violating yichud um, in the in the sukkah. I guess that the bride might be with a man who's not her husband, depending on where you put the sukkah. Right, if anybody could show up there, that's not that's not the chatan, that's not the groom. 
Rav Amar, because that was a biased statement, now it's Rav's statement, Mishum Tsar Chatan. Rav said the reason is that the groom, the Chatan here, is going to be suffering because Asuka is not private enough, right? So then he won't have enough private, have private time together. So Abai's answer and Rav's answer, I would say like they're almost two sides of the coin because on the one hand, Abai is concerned about the Yichud, about the seclusion that what about, will will this wife be able to be, um, would she, you know, be at risk of being secluded with somebody who's not her husband? And Rava says, well, we want them to be able to be secluded together, just that, just the couple in their privacy of their newly, in their new marriage. My benayhu, what's the difference between them? So what's the difference between them? The real difference between them, according to the Gemara, is that people do regularly go in and out of a sukkah. Right, so then you don't have, which which is a real difference to say. Well, you're concerned about yichud, you're concerned about seclusion, or or you're concerned about having privacy that you want privacy. It's a little bit of an issue in either direction, really. You don't have an issue of leka of I'm sorry of yichud, not really. But you don't have that privacy. So the concern that the that the 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 gemara starts by saying. The simcha should be celebrated in the home because that's the place of that's where their meal should be because that's where their rejoicing is because the chuppah takes precedence the the wedding takes precedence over the mitzvah of sukkah in this case and yet there seem to be other reasons as well that would drive this couple inside. Rabbi Zera says, "I love this." I'm Rabbi Zera. Ana achale basuka v'chadi b'chupa. Rabbi Zera says, "I got married on erev sukkot. I ate in the sukkah." I also rejoiced in my chuppah, in my wedding home. And and I was that much happier because I got to do both, right? That he was able to do both marriage and sukkah. But it's important to note, and the commentaries here really do, take note of the fact that Rabbi Zera is not saying that others should imitate him. He's not poskening that this is the rule. And you know, perhaps in him, Rabbi Zera, in his piety, the best move for him was to figure out a way to both have the fulfilled the mitzvah of sukkah in person and also, rather than take the exemption, and to also spend time with his wife, whom he married, Erev Sukkot. But for everybody else, the the policy, you know, is as above on the on the Dafta Gemara. It's a great passage. I don't have too much commentary to give, uh, but a very famous Gemara, a great story about a wedding. Um, and uh, again, these are one of these dots that gets referred to over and over again. Over and over again. This And this idea, the, the, the philosophical point, right, about once you're involved with one mitzvah, to what extent does that knock you out of the running or at least exempt you from doing another mitzvah that is kind of required at that same time is an important platform of how we conduct ourselves with, you know, in a life of mitzvot. Right. And that, you know, it's okay to focus on one thing at a time, which me, yes. I always joke around that my superhuman powers, I'm a great multitasker. This stuff gives me pause to that. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's, a, I think it's useful, right? I think it makes the point that we, at least, uh, uh, you know, for the most people, maybe you're Dana, maybe you're like Rabbi Zera, but for most people, we would say, focus on the one mitzvah at hand and, and live it fully, right? And the next year, you know, you won't be in that situation again. You'll you'll do the other mitzvah. Yeah, I would fall in camp Rabbi Zera. Well, that's our DAP discussion.
this on all major podcasts. Thank you to Robin and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.